Let me pray first of all. Father, we praise you that you have hope that lifts us from despair. You have love that casts out every fear. So we want this morning to stand on every promise of your word. Please would you speak to us now by your Holy Spirit. And may we leave here trusting afresh in the Lord Jesus and living for him this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So page 35, Genesis chapter 32. Jacob has just managed to wriggle free from Laban's clutches. He is ready to go home. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, manservants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later when I see him, Perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip 
so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So, Ian, can I just double check we are recording for the benefit of those who are not here? Great, thank you. So in the, in the book of Genesis, we have been spending time with this extraordinary family a family that is at times unsavoury, unattractive, unpleasant, dysfunctional, and yet it is this family, Abraham's family, that God chose to use to begin his plan to save the world. In particular, Jacob, whose life we've been concerned with in chapters 25 to 35, is manipulative, he's deceptive, he's selfish, he's grasping, and yet God chooses to continue the line of promise through him. What we've been seeing through these chapters is God's relentless grace to and through those who really don't deserve it. And last time we saw things beginning to come together for Jacob. God is being faithful, keeping his promises. He's given him the people that he promised, 11 sons and a daughter so far. He's given him his blessing, but he's still not in the land. But God has now told him to go home to the land. And after all the fuss we saw with Laban, Last time, he is finally free to go back. So this chapter and the next one, chapter 33, are what happens when God's man goes home to the promised land. How does God get him there? Now, the first readers of this were the Israelites on the edge of the promised land with Moses teaching them. In terms of the history, it's at the end of the book of Deuteronomy and they look back and they see all this. They're ready to go in and they are wondering as well, how will God get us, the nation of Israel, into the promised land? What will it take? Now Jacob feared Esau, who was waiting for him, as we heard in the reading. The Israelites later feared the inhabitants as they stood poised to enter. And for us, now that with Jesus coming, the promise of lands has been expanded to mean the entire world remade, new heavens, new earth, that is our promise that we are waiting for. We are like those first readers if we're Christians trusting in Jesus. We are waiting and we're wondering, how will God get us there? Now, I don't want to make this entirely about coronavirus but it is clearly the pressing issue of the moment and it reminds us that we live 
in a world where life is fragile and full of fear and the future is uncertain and we ourselves struggle to trust the God who made us, to trust that he's got this, to trust that he's in control. How is God going to get us to the promised land? Will we give up along the way? Or if we're not yet trusting in Jesus, what would it mean to do, to do that and start to have confidence in the face of our deepest fears, in the face of death, and to know with certainty that God is taking us to the promised land? What would it take? Well, that is our question then. How does God get his people to the promised land? And as, as Jacob becomes Israel, as we heard, in this chapter we can see three main answers to that question. How does God get his people to the promised land? First then, he brings them to their knees. He brings them to their knees. Jacob, we know, is returning to the promised land because God has told him to go. God has promised he's going to be with him. And verse 1, things start off well with angels encouraging him on the way, but then he's faced with the prospect of being reunited with his brother, who he's not seen, remember, since he tricked Isaac into blessing him instead of Esau. And things start to get very real for Jacob. He sends a message. I am coming home, verse 5, so that you're not surprised to see me when I turn up. And the messengers come back. Esau is coming to meet you with a very ominous 400 men. So, verse 7, Jacob has a massive wobble. Have you been in this kind of situation? You know, you want to trust God, you think you are trusting God, but then something happens. A virus strikes, or some other crisis at home, or at work, or whatever, and, and, and you are terrified. And Jacob's first response is pragmatic. He, he divides his people into two. Each half, if you like, self-isolates from the other. And at least, he's thinking, one half will survive. Jacob has been brought to his knees through his circumstances. He's terrified, and it seems he's realised that his own ingenuity and deceitfulness and manipulation is no longer sufficient to get him out of the hole. Thus far, this is what he's always done. He's always kind of cracked a plan and got on with it and things have worked out okay. But now he does something extraordinary. Extraordinary for him, anyway. On his knees, as he's been brought to his knees, he prays. Remember, Jacob is God's chosen one. God has spoken directly and personally to him. Jacob then knows a lot about God, but up till now, Jacob has not been recorded as speaking to God in prayer. And look at what he says. God, you've told me to go home. I'm not worthy of all you've given me. It's a great place to start for proud, manipulative Jacob. He acknowledges God's love and faithfulness, and then he prays, please deliver me, it says literally. Save me from Esau. You've promised to get me to the promised land safely. Please do what you've promised. And there are echoes here of the parable of the lost son in Luke 15, which is one of the reasons we studied it a few weeks ago. We had a little break from Genesis. Can you see the echoes here if you were here? Don't worry if you weren't. But it says, I am not worthy. And we'll see some of the other echoes and why they're significant 
um, later and, and next week as well. But, but Jacob is doing something particularly striking here, which in many ways is an excellent model of prayer. He is speaking God's promises back to God. Can you see that? In the face of his circumstances. This, this is something the psalmists do all the time, and we can do it too. When life seems to be falling apart, on our knees, pleading with God is not a bad place to start. But then look. Jacob has prayed this great prayer that he's never prayed before, and yet, like so many of us, he's still <clears throat> conflicted. He still can't help himself trying to fix the problem that he knows can't be fixed by himself. So remember the prodigal son returning to his father in Luke 15. He plans, you know, the, the son coming back to his father after all that time in, you know, feeding the pigs, and he's got to rock bottom, and he plans to say, I have sinned, make me like one of your hired men. Let me pay you back. Let me buy my way out of the debt I owe you for what I've done. And now do you see Jacob does something similar. He gathers all these animals, 550 of them in total. And, and verse 18, he tells his servants to send them as a gift, a pacifier. And be really sure, we heard, didn't we? He says twice to point out, here are the gifts. And Jacob is coming behind. Have you got that? You really need to tell him that because I want to pacify him. This is my only hope. So do you see, he's conflicted, he's brought to his knees, he's desperate, he's, he's praying, but then he's also just tempted to still do everything he can to sort out his problems. But the thing is, when it comes to trusting God, being on your knees is actually a very good place to start. How does God get his people to the promised land? He brings them to their knees, and then secondly, he transforms them. He transforms them. At first, th th things seem to get even worse for Jacob before they get better. He's just prayed to God for help, hasn't he? He's prayed for deliverance. And what happens? God decks him. A man who we soon discover to be God himself in, in a kind of pre-incarnate form, he knocks Jacob to the ground and they wrestle all night. At face value, this confirms many people's worst suspicions about God. I thought God was meant to make things better. But here he is with the power to end Jacob's torment just like that, and he makes it worse instead. In survey after survey, the number one question or objection people have about God and Christianity is, how can a God who claims to be a God of love allow his people to suffer? And I suspect that question is going to become ever more acute in the coming months. But we need to see what happens next. This night, this, uh, this wrestling that goes on in the night seems very mysterious, doesn't it, as we read it? But in many ways, it is entirely apt because wrestling with God is what Jacob has been doing for his entire life. Like two people wrestling over the steering wheel in a car. Jacob's been doing that with God trying to manipulate things into being done his way. He must be in control. He will not let go. And so God wrestles him, and this night of wrestling changes Jacob. Jacob doesn't give up, but as the night draws to a close, he realises this isn't a battle he can win. And the way Jacob comes to understand that is striking. It's the man wrestling him who realises that he cannot prevail. Because Jacob 
isn't going to give up trying to push him away and maintain control. And so he very simply touches his hip and dislocates it. And, and you see how this extraordinary demonstration of, of a simple power that he has, this changes Jacob. This is the guy who would do anything to manipulate situations to his advantage, to keep control for himself, to keep God at arm's length. And now he's not pushing God away, but look, verse 26, he won't let him go. He stops fighting God and he starts clinging to him. And so God changes his name. Verse 28, no longer Jacob, which remember means grasper, the one who grasps the heel, but Israel which means he struggles with God. He struggles with God, have changed him. God has changed him through those struggles. And this is so important for us to understand because it goes against so much of what we naturally assume about God. If he's there, we think, well, he must want my life to go well. He's kind of there to make things go easier. Surely, surely that's his job, we think. And so when things are not going well, well, we doubt his goodness he feels far from us we're confused about why he would let these things happen but can you see that with Jacob it's actually only when Jacob is on his knees and beyond that flat on the ground at his very lowest point it's only then that he realizes that he's met God do you see that verse 30 I saw God face to face. And when did that happen? That seeing God, you know, you imagine seeing God face to face, that's going to be some grand, dramatic um, experience. Well, he saw him not when everything was great and he got the blessing he wanted and he got married and he had children as everything has gone through his life. Those weren't the times earlier in his life when he saw God face to face. Now, the time when he saw God and he knew God face to face was when Everything was absolutely awful and he was at rock bottom. Do you see? Then God was with him, face to face, changing him through his struggle. And do you notice he went into this impending, uh, this, this wrestling, he went into this terrified of his impending encounter with Esau. Deliver me, save me he said, from what's about to happen. But now, verse 30, what's he saying? I saw God face to face, and he spared me. Again, literally, it's he delivered me. Same word. The day before, as far as he was concerned, his greatest need was be to, to be delivered from Esau, wasn't it? That's the, the thing that was in his mind. He thought, I, that's the one thing that must happen. That's the one thing I need to pray about. Now he realizes something even more significant has happened. He's been delivered from God himself. Because what do we expect to happen when sinful, manipulative, deceitful Jacob has an encounter with a holy God face to face? Well, of course, we expect him not to survive, surely. How can sin survive in the presence of holiness like a ball of wax flying into the sun? Forget Esau and the need to be delivered from him. This is an extraordinary miracle, do you see? And it can help sometimes, can't it, to get even our deepest fears in perspective. 
there is something worse than succumbing to coronavirus. And that is meeting face to face with a God we're not ready to meet. There's something greater than being delivered from coronavirus. And that is seeing God face to face and being delivered. That's what Jacob is saying, do you see? Our fear may be great, but we know the one who is greater than our fear. And in Christ, through his sin-bearing death on the cross, he's given us the rescue we need the most. So God brings his people to their knees, he transforms them, and then thirdly, he takes them home limping. This encounter with God humbles Jacob and it changes him forever. Now he walks with a limp, verse 31, a constant reminder that he saw God and lived. And the people of Israel were given this constant reminder in their diet. You don't eat the tendon attached to the hip socket. So it's a lasting mark for Israel. Do you see? For Israel, the man. For Israel, the nation. Don't forget this. And Jacob has learnt that God is not just the dispenser of random blessings who needs to be manipulated so that he, Jacob, can get what he wants. Jacob has learned that actually the greatest blessing he can possibly have is God himself, knowing God for himself. Do you see, in his life he's longed for approval, for blessing from his father. He's manipulated that for himself. He's longed for love and beauty in Rachel. And he's manipulated that for himself. He's longed for wealth from Laban. And he's managed to get some of that as well. And each of these desires has been tortuously met in some ways and then unmet in other ways. And it's nearly destroyed him. But now on his knees and and, and finally on the ground he finds God is all he has. And he realises actually God is all he needs. C.S. Lewis once said this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that is finally what Jacob has come to realise. He needs to stop struggling against God to get what he thinks he needs here and now. He needs to cling on to God and find his deepest desires and needs met in him. And this limp that he's left with is a daily reminder of that. Now, I can empathise with Jacob when it comes to limping. When I was 26, I was training to be a vicar. And over just a few months, I started experiencing a strange intermittent pain in my hip. And then one day I woke up and I couldn't walk at all. And they quickly diagnosed rheumatoid arthritis and I had one hip resurfaced and then the same thing happened in the, in the other one just under two years later. And now the first hip is beginning to wear out so I do limp around quite a lot. So I will be needing surgery again I guess in the next few years. Along the way I found I have Crohn's disease. Now when these kinds of things happen, when you're seeking to serve God in full-time ministry, it'd be easy to think, wouldn't it? Well, Why me? That's not fair. And I know it will be the same for many of us who've suffered in far more significant ways than that while seeking to trust God and follow him. 
But my testimony, and I know others here who would say the same thing about their experiences, these things have brought me not further from God, but closer to him. See, they've made me aware of how self-dependence is never going to get me home. They've humbled me. Now, there's a lot more humbling for God to do, as there is in all of us. And, and maybe for you, it's not physical health. It's some other unfulfilled dream or bereavement or the more hidden suffering of depression or anxiety. Any of these things can be a daily limp. A thing that makes us cry out and say, it's not meant to be like this. Surely it's not meant to be like this. And more than that, I can't do this. I can't do this by myself. I can't limp into the promised land in my own strength. But, again and again, God's people find when they realise Jesus is all they have, they find that Jesus is all they need. And he will take us limping to the promised land. So where does that leave us then? That there is this strong message here to Israel on the edge of the promised land. Self-dependence and self-reliance are not going to get you in. Cling to God only. But actually that isn't quite all because although God has changed Jacob into Israel, it is noticeable that through the rest of his life and indeed the rest of the Bible, the name change doesn't always stick. It's not like when Abraham becomes Abraham and we never refer to him as Abraham again. Jacob actually just sort of flits between the two. Sometimes he's Jacob, sometimes he's Israel. Sometimes he is, he is very Jacob-like still, grasping and self-dependent. And Israel, the people of Israel, at times in their history, act in the same grasping, self-dependent way as we all do too, don't we? We know we're supposed to trust God and yet in the face of our deepest fears, perhaps even right now today, we still struggle to do that. So if the message is simply, try harder to cling hard to God and he will get you home, we know in our own strength that's not actually going to quite be enough. But there did come a true Israel, one in whom there was no Jacob. Jesus, we heard in the first reading, was brought to his knees. Jesus wrestled with God in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross itself. And as man, he aligned his human will with his divine will and he obeyed his father where Adam and Eve failed, where Jacob and Israel failed, where we fail, Jesus obeyed. And he clung to God through the agony of the cross and he would not let him go, not in order to get God's blessing, but in order to take God's curse. That we deserve. He took it. And from that dreadful experience, he was left not limping, but utterly crushed until God raised him on the third day. And he did that for us. And now Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3 in the New Testament it is our privilege, if we are trusting in Jesus, to share in his sufferings. We, it's sort of printed on the front of the service sheet. You can see it. 
Paul says that's what he wants to do, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. What a strange thing to say. But actually we've seen this morning, do you see, that it's only in our struggles and our weakness and our suffering that we learn to abandon self-dependence And it's only in our struggles and our weakness and our suffering that we actually know God who suffered with us and for us as a man. So the message of this chapter 32 in Genesis to God's people on their way to the promised land is cling to him. Yes, cling to him. Don't let him go. But cling to him because his grasp of you and of me is far stronger than our grasp will ever be of him. So, of course, we're going to take all the sensible precautions in the coming weeks and months with regard to this virus, and please pray for me and the trustees and others as we work out the most sensible way forwards. Pray for those amongst us who are working in frontline health care. But if there does come a time when we can't meet together like this, what are we going to do to keep encouraging each other, to keep clinging to God who has us in his firmest grasp. We need each other. Even from a distance, we need each other. Those who are particularly vulnerable amongst us, they need us alongside them. Not always in the same room, but with them. Not forgotten, not abandoned. Because that is not how God has treated or will ever treat his people. So if you've not yet trusted in this saviour who went to the cross and struggled with God and took the curse we deserve, know that if you simply come to him and say, enough with the self-dependence, I can't do this by myself, I can't face my deepest fears alone, I need Jesus to take the curse I deserve. I need Jesus to take me through death to the new heavens and the new earth God has promised. Know that if you do that, He will welcome you. He will embrace you. And you can do that even today. And to those of us who do trust this saviour, we need to know that being on our knees in fear because of our circumstances is not a bad place for God's people to be. But then come to him. And know he is committed to transforming our stubborn and weak hearts that struggle to trust him and know that limping he will get us home let's be quiet for a moment
Father, we praise you that your grasp of us is stronger in Christ than ours will ever be of you. Thank you, therefore, that we can cling to you. In the face of our deepest fears, you are stronger. We have a greater hope. So may we be clinging onto you as you hold even more firmly onto us. And may we then go into the world that really needs to hear this and share the hope that you've given us in Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.